I've been keeping this Baja Blast in the fridge for two days just to do this. <laughs> wow. We're doing it. That is sick. I wish there was a sound effect that went along with the Baja. You could like pull the straw up, make a <laughs> oh, weird yeah. order. Yeah. Baja Blast from Taco Bell the other day because you drink it so much and she hated it. And we were remarried <laughs> in that moment. Yeah, uh, Java Dave tries Brady, like Dave. every every second. I, I one got and down on a like, knee and I said, "I love you." <laughs> <laughs> Marry me. <laughs> it was this and watching me eat a shoe. Those are the two high points of the marriage. In honor of stop making sense, returning to theaters this weekend and October's surprise Taylor Swift concert film. What concert movie should be re-released in IMAX? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and because of Stop Making Sense and Spike Lee moderating the Stop, Stop Making Sense Q&A in Toronto, I was thinking about American Utopia, the uh, Spike Lee-directed movie about David Bird's Broadway show that I saw at home in 2020 and thought about how fun it would be to go back to a theater, and I want to go back to a theater and see it again. I am Matt Patches, and coincidentally, I am also going to pick a Spike Lee film. Is Spike Lee one of the best uh, live concert, concert directors? There is, Probably. I don't know, but I'm going to actually kind of curveball here and pick Passing Strange, his uh, filmed version of the Broadway show written and performed by Stu, which is the first time I ever saw Coleman Domingo in anything. I actually saw the show and then I saw the movie and I love, love, love this Broadway show and I don't even know if you can watch this movie now and obviously no one saw it the first time. So if they re-release it, no one would see it a second time, but that's okay. Or maybe they would discover it for the first time. It's amazing. I love it. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I'm going with uh, Buena Vista Social Club because I missed it in theaters in 1999. Still regret that. I think it might have been shot on video. I was looking at clips and listening to fantastic songs before this podcast uh, recorded, but that's okay because it'd be worth it for the forced focus and for the sound. I am David Ehrlich, and it's not quite a concert film, uh, although there is some errant concert footage in it, enough that I thought of it for this, but I'm going to go with uh, Grant Gee's Radiohead documentary, Meeting People is Easy, because you have not experienced Tom York's uh, anxiety and depression circa 1997 until you've experienced it on a 16-story screen. I'm so excited to experience that, truly. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 445. It is the week of Wednesday, September 20th. This, is the best this was one, a banner I think. day. I'm calling it now. <laughs> 1996. This is the best one of all of them. Uh, you don't when read they, the Lightyear when, question in advance, but you do you read do, this in advance. When you see the listicles about the top 100 episodes of Fighting in the War Room, which I know the, the, every website has their own Who's list, uh-huh. but yeah. I think canonically, 445 is number one. Oh, you're talking about the number, not like what I was about to say happened in this day in 1996. Oh, I know. I couldn't. I thought you were getting ahead of us. Uh, No, 445 (laughs) is going to be a good one. Also, September 20th, 1996 was a good day because uh, the first Wives Club came out in theaters. Banner Day. We all remember where we were. uh, The first Wives Club. Don't they sing a... You, you don't, don't own, own me. me. Yeah, that's that's not the only thing I remember. Uh, I mean, I saw they're all theaters. the first wives of some guy. You saw uh, the first wives club in theaters in 1996, I'm, uh, David. I'm sure. What twelve year old boy would dare miss that? <laughs> <laughs> 
it made you really cool then and it makes you really cool now it uh it all worked out great uh here we have some reviews david go bring out your cool inner 12 year old tell us who's giving us reviews uh i believe we have one we have one yeah uh, it's from hi everybody hi dr nick it is indeed a podcast. Fun fact, there used to be seven friends on this podcast. Katie, Dave, David, Patches, Caroline, Sydney, and Eric. But through a series of mergers and acquisitions, we are now down to four. Keep up the good work, guys. It is the era of mergers and acquisitions. They spelled Eric with a K. I do have a close friend. Is Eric with a K. Sydney uh, was my grandfather. Sydney Sweeney. No, Sydney Sweeney was on the show. Sydney, Sydney Sweeney. That's where she got her start. Is Sydney Sweeney with a Y or an I? Is Sydney no, with it's a Y. With a y. I, can't, I can't read this. I don't know how it's spelled. Um, <laughs> Sydney with a Y. That's intense. Um, and then I have a friend, Caroline. I mean, these could be real people. This could have happened. Um, but it didn't. <laughs> Love it. We also got two emails. This one from somebody who asked to be called JC, but clarified he was not Jesus Christ. Uh, the subject is just Taylor Swift. I love this show and have been regular, a regular listener for years. I'm also a massive Swifty and was delighted to hear all the Taylor talk last episode. <laughs> when talking about Taylor's legacy, one thing that shouldn't go unremarked upon is her masterful use of social media. Going back to MySpace at the very beginning of her career, she has harnessed the various platforms that have come since uh, that have come into being, creating a persona that feels authentic and relatable, despite clearly having an unrelatable life in most aspects. I also went to two Eras concerts, and I will be going to a third next year, and the tour was one of the most amazing spectacles I've ever seen. She has complete command of the stage and is able to make a football stadium feel incredibly intimate. All the vibes were so positive, I would have gone 50 times if I had the money to do so. It also doesn't hurt that she's six feet tall, leggy, and blonde, but I digress. As for um, Mike Berbiglia... Sh- I was just going to say, Taylor Swift <laughs> crushed, crushed it on Peach. <laughs> As for Mike Perbiglia, as for Mike Perbiglia, he's great friends with her BFF and producer Jack Antonoff, and he played Taylor's terrible future son in her video for Antihero, which he also directed. So we were just not we were not Swifty deep enough to be like, why Mike Perbiglia? Thank you, JC, for that. You know something about a Swifty story that I didn't think about last week, but the first time I ever remember paying attention to Taylor Swift, like her music, like not just knowing who she was, but like caring about her music, was David Ehrlich really loving I Knew You Were Trouble. Uh, really? And specifically the remixes where they turn it like into goats bleeding in, in the, the middle. Uh, I just I associate that with David. I have no I memory why. of this. I know. I, I don't know why you would, but like that song, you, you somehow introduced <laughs> me to that song and now here we are today. <sighs> Uh, Some would say I Island. made Taylor Swift with my yeah, interest. Well, some, 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 say that. some would say that. Some yes. would say that, yeah. Uh, Eric from Robot Island writes in with this email uh, whose subject is five-star review. Hi, Fitwer. There was an idea, Patches knows this, called Fighting in the War Room. The idea was bring together a group of remarkable critics <laughs> to see if they could become something more. To see if they could talk together when we needed them to. To talk about the movies that we never could. Roger Ebert died still believing in that idea in critics. Well, it's an old-fashioned notion. Long-time listener, first-time writer, love the pod, five stars. Eric. Is that, an, is that an Expendables quote? It's an Avengers quote. Oh. Uh, Buy the MCU book in, in stores when? <laughs> I think I knew October that. October 10th. If I had gotten further into the MCU book by now, I might have caught that quote, but uh, I'm, I'm still in Ike Perlmutter causing trouble. Yeah, the, first <laughs> that, pa- the first couple pages are all about Italian food. I'm really hungry. That is true. <laughs> and research. I still remember the day I researched that. And I'm like, oh my God, I found what they ate. 
Um, anyway, <laughs> if you have a review, it does us good. If you review it on your uh, iTunes, Apple podcast app store, and uh, that will help us reach people. You can also review it on, you know, whatever app you're listening to us on uh, Spotify, whatnot. But in order to have it read, we're looking for podcast app reviews and or you can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com and we can read it out loud. Or in some cases, like this week's mini segment, help you with a question. Uh, that's an interesting tease. On with the show. Well, guys, I got to see a movie that Katie got to see at Toronto, but you all will get to see next Friday when it comes out. It is called Dumb Money. It is based on a book called The Antisocial Network, which uh, I guess uh, journalistically, but also with some minor uh, fiction to juice it up, told the story of the GameStop stock short selling crisis. I have happens. tried to say this phrase in a different podcast on Little Gold Men, and like every time the producer was like, "Try it again." It's try it you, again. You, you gotta like really slow down to say this. The words. GameStop <laughs> short squeeze of January 2021. <laughs> it also uh, follows characters through the pandemic times of 2020 as a whole bunch of people on Reddit decide to buy GameStop stock so they can uh, counteract the gigantic hedge funds that are short selling it uh yes this may sound like a whole bunch of wall street bullshit don't worry this movie has enough of the big short in it to let you get your footing especially because it is no, centered I mean, that's around my biggest their... worry that it has any of the big short <laughs> well, okay hang on that can be the last time we mention the big short in this i think yes it will definitely be mentioning the social network many more times uh this movie focuses around paul dano who's playing keith gill he was a a uh, person who uh, posted as Roaring Kitten on YouTube, but also posted to Wall Street bets. Very specifically, he would post his balance sheets at the end of each trading day, showing that his bet on GameStop uh, was paying off. And he sort of accidentally led a movement amongst uh, day traders uh, or app traders, as would be more appropriate for this time in stock trading history. Uh, those people referred to... Uh, by bigger head fudge, head fudge, head <laughs> hedge fund managers. <laughs> Woo! The Baja blast is not helping you through it, this. It is not. No, no it's, I haven't had enough. I haven't had enough. Or blast. <laughs> hedge fund managers, such as yeah. the one played by Seth Rogen in this movie, refer to these sorts of retail trailers as dumb money. That's where the movie gets its title. I was sitting down next to uh, Jeff Kanata from the film cast. I'm like, I would have told you this movie would have been called Stonks because that's <laughs> what I remember from this happening. Mm. Uh, but it's also, yeah, it's a movie about fairly recent history. Uh, I thought it was, you know, pretty, it was going pretty good for like the first half. Uh, then the second half, it does get kind of social networky as uh, the government takes notice of what's going on and we have to. Uh, and the movie with some depositions, uh, and you're going to feel kind of social networky. Katie, I want to know what you thought about this movie, but I also want to know if you could answer one of my uh, burning questions about this movie, 
that is one of my only notes, but I took it during the end credits. Why are the Winklevoss twins executive producers on Dumb Money? Oh my God, I have no idea. I did not notice that. Uh, so Me I don't know the answer to that. Um, I did think that the score sounded a lot like the Social Network score. Mm-hmm. And there was a point where I was just like, why are you like, it, like it's not as good as the Social Network. I feel like we can like say that confidently but like are they trying like an to emotion- like be a parody of it do you think do you th- no it, it's i mean goof? it no it, it, it's, it's very it's, i don't want to say i don't want to say it's like very heartfelt i mean it is heartfelt in points like that like it's got energy to it it's like the big short in that it's like sorry i did say it again it's a bunch of different <sighs> characters kind of taking a, a prismatic view of this thing uh-huh, blast. but it doesn't have that adam mckay point of view being like you fucking morons you do not understand how this works it's a you have the spirit of this paul dano character who's like look i'm a guy in my basement i put on this cat shirt and I talked to you about it in plain language and you kind of see from the point of view of all these people who are following him, like a GameStop employee and America Ferrera plays a nurse and there's like college kids who can kind of see it through his point of view and understand it. And I mean, I think there is there's a sense, especially toward the end, where it's like, well, look, even though they got bailed out, I, <coughs> oh, I have to sneeze. No, oh, you can keep that in if you want to. Dave. Um, OK, even though the washer guys win in the end, because spoiler alert. Obviously, the like hedge funds didn't collapse. Um, they started a revolution, and like the stock market has changed. And you're like, no, I like, I don't, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure the stock market is still you rigged read Wall against Street us Journal every day, Katie. I did do, I do, I do not know. <laughs> um, so there is this like populist energy thing to it, where you're like, oh, all right, all right. But I think the energy really is affecting. I think Paul Dano kind of gives the movie his energy. Pete Davidson is like as much as I've ever liked him playing his like layabout brother, He's- like a real. He's Pete having David- a great year. Yeah, it's like a real Pete Davidson type, like exactly what, do they what you would do expect in this movie. Though, is it like, aren't they at the computer a lot? Um, a little. Sorry, bit. Sorry, I'm drinking water because I then sneeze and now I had a scratch in my throat. I'm really um pulling back the curtain mm. here. Um, <laughs> no, they're at their computer, but it's all Paul Dano's a YouTuber, so he's talking like into his computer, and then you Ooh. see like these girls at UT Austin who are like looking at their phones, trying to decide if they should trade, and like. They do a good job of kind of fighting all these people in their siloed worlds. Like even Seth Rogen as the hedge fund guy has Olivia Thurlby as his wife. Like it's really the revenge of like 2008, 2009 indies in this movie. They're all over the place. Um, so he's talking to her and there's a point where, you're, you know, she's like, we lost a billion dollars today. And it's like it doesn't want you to feel bad for them, but it wants you to see them as people, which I think is interesting. I think casting Seth Rogen as the hedge fund guy kind of shows you the level of nuance they're going for. It's not just like easy pot shots over and over again. Um, it's, I don't know, it's its a more interesting movie for that, I think. Yeah, I the, the, the energy at the beginning is great uh, because it's not as reliant on the score. It is reliant on a lot of uh, editing in between different social media uh, interactions. It uses a lot vi- of memes. Like it tells the story through memes, memes to a degree you have never seen before and presumably all real memes from this time. Oh, yeah. But what I really liked about it was it's, you know, set during 2020 and 2021. Uh, so there's the the pandemics at the edges. Uh, there's uh, the boss of Anthony Ramos's GameStop employee character was this guy who stays masked most of the movie. I'm like, your eyes look familiar, brother. Who are you? It's Dane DeHaan. He's back. <laughs> He's in movies he has again. A, he has a rat tail. <laughs> he does. Um, and this movie no. does a pretty great job with its soundtrack by using uh, 
especially rap tracks that were popular at the time to sort Savage of Savage being the the huge one. Savage and WAP uh, Humble too, right? and WAP. Uh, yeah. yeah, they're all there, but they use them as uh, you know, Katie was talking about a prismatic view. Whenever we have to check in with all characters at once, it's very often under one of these pop songs and like a montage. I found that really effective. There are parts of this movie that execute like Mark Zuckerberg invents Facebook while drunk and blogging in the social network. It's just hard to keep that up because as Katie was mentioning, it would like to tell you at the end, you know, something grand was changed. And it was more like we had this moment the most is what changed is individual people's fortunes and not all of them are like saved now out of yeah. their, their situation yeah. uh, because you right. know, it's more like a gambling get... movie than like uh, a wall. Street yeah. Yeah. At some level. Yeah. It's, I would say. It's... Well, yeah. Cause you have this whole period where they're like, Oh my God, it keeps going up and up and up. Should I sell? And Paul Dano's like, I'm not selling everyone's sick with it. Like if we all keep buying in and don't sell like the hedge fund, which has bet on GameStop going down, they'll just continue losing money. So there's like the, the tension of like, will they sell? Will they be smart? Especially knowing that you know that it falls apart and like you want Anthony Ramos to get out in time to be able to stop working for Dana Han. Um, so there's like a, there's like a built-in dream for anyone there. to stop working for Dana Han. I know. Uh, just, um, do you, I, I, I love that Dana Han and Olivia Thirlby went from Oppenheimer into this, like just <laughs> bopping around giant ensembles. Uh, I understand that it is not important for you to understand this to enjoy a movie like this, but do you come away with it with any understanding of how shorts actually work. Not what they are, but like how they work. Because this is something that yeah. has eluded me for so long. I kind of did, actually. Like, I think the push and pull between these people all buy into GameStop, they make the stock go up, therefore Seth Rogen loses money. Like, that there is a, a balance there kind of helped me understand what short selling means I'm, I'm sure that's not all of it but the very basics of it made sense to me i don't know if we should be You're... telling david this as a uh poker player and professional gambler he really wants to know this so he can start you know gambling from home on the stock market mm-hmm. i'm worried i about mean david. i think if he starts gambling <laughs> do from it, home david. he will he will be probably part of the short squeezers i don't think he's gonna jump immediately into shorting companies you're not gonna me. run uh, ahead jump fun. where i want to jump <laughs> he's gonna squeeze uh, no, i grew up in greenwich connecticut all right hedge funds and stuff's in my blood where i fit in like a uh, fucking square peg in a round hole um but yeah no it, it'll tell you just enough to understand what's happening with the short squeeze it does uh throw some uh different you know put and call terminology out without saying anything but you get the idea based on the context clues, because all of our main characters, with the exception of uh, Seth Rogen and uh, Nick Offerman uh, and Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, <laughs> the rest of them are just everyday people. So we do get a little bit of downloading about exactly what's happening in the layman's terms. Yeah. Uh, but mostly it's it's chasing that high that the people are getting, the diamond hands high, where a whole bunch of normal everyday people, by just holding on to stock that they had already bought, um slowly drove uh you know wall street insane uh again towards the end uh i don't want to spoil the movie or anything it's history so i don't know necessarily how i could do that for reason history but i'm going to uh go in it's like if you know about this crisis the thing that's actually the shady deal uh that happens in this entire hullabalub uh is only uh, it's actually hullabaloo but i kind of like hullabaloo uh it's (laughs) 
only alluded to during the runtime of the film. There's a title at the end that explains it, but it one Sebastian Stan throwaway line uh, that's like, that's where the illegal thing happened. But uh, like, so they can't say that because they would get sued. Like, it, it's not correct. been proven that something illegal happened. So the movie just kind of has to let you draw your own conclusions there. Exactly. I think it's fun. I th- When I'm in the middle of, uh, you know, sort of Wall Street class warfare movie, I'm having a great time. But it is sort of a, a slow, total letdown um, that I, has some good character moments, uh, especially for the Paul Dano character at the end. Uh, but it could have it could have bit been bigger. And now that Katie just said that because I could have been sued, it could have been bigger if we had more distance from what actually happened. I think. Yeah. Uh, this this does a great job of capturing the feeling at that time where it's like we're all stuck in a fucking pandemic. And let's get mad at the people who are making money off of all this. I think it's very successful in that sense. I really can't overstate how much like how satisfying it is to see all the mask wearing stuff, which I did not think would. I think I would. I thought I would recoil from it, but like you see Paul Dano's character on like the metro in Boston, and he's like holding his cup of coffee, and he pulls his mask down and takes a sip of coffee and puts it back up. And you're like, oh yeah, I know that. Like I've yeah. been there. Um, and I think there's like they come up with ways for them to take their mask because like when you're watching a movie, you don't want to see a character talking through a mask. Like it sucks. So like they it's, unless contrive, it's Dane Han because they let him do it for like half the movie. Uh, they contrive ways to get them around it, but it is like you know America Ferrera sees like a cute guy at a gas station. And she's like, oh, I better stay six feet away. Hi, and you're like, oh god, I hated that so much. I'm so glad we're not doing that anymore. But it also makes sense for why. You know, the, the energy behind this couldn't have existed if it weren't for the pandemic. It doesn't mention January 6th, which was happening right around the same time. But I think that would have really That's been a detour stray. it didn't need. Yeah, uh, that would have very much muddled the point of this movie, <laughs> which is like, rise up. Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but, d- but not but, that. Ri- yeah, rise up and don't break it in her, okay? Katie, to, to wrap up, I have a, another burning question for you, which is, have you ever been in a GameStop? Yeah, we went to a GameStop right as we when we left the Mario movie. We went to the GameStop in the adjacent <laughs> mall to see if they had a Switch, and they didn't. And, oh, uh, so we went. So well, I mean, they did, but they didn't have like the one we wanted with Mario Kart the or something. OLED. So, oh, then, okay. so then we went to um, Target instead. But yeah, we went to the GameStop in the mall. It's still there, going strong. Of course, it's still there. That's like one of the only brick and mortar kind of successful businesses that still exists. One of uh, the only Rick and Morty businesses. <laughs> did you guys did you guys did your mall have a babbages what is that it was it's that like, was it's like the, an ori- game that was the like original yeah. that was the original GameStop. that was what we had in wow. our mall babbages and it sold like computer games and yeah. now it's GameStop. Yeah. No. so i went into babbages plenty so i as a real way of closing out the winklevoss twins were brought on as executive producers uh, when the option for the book was sold to Michael DeLuca, and since Michael DeLuca produced both The Social Network and The Accidental Billionaire's adaptation, which was about uh, the Winklevoss twins, they, I guess, are friends enough with Michael DeLuca to be executive producers on Internet Stories. Interesting. I want to look into this more. Uh, Dumb Money, you could see it next Friday in theaters I think uh, it's yeah. in limited release, so like if you're in a big city, you might be able to see it now. But you can see it in limited release unless you live <laughs> in the middle con- the middle states. Unless you live where I do, where you gotta wait a little while. Seven days a week. Wet ass pussy. Make that pullout game weak. Yeah, you fucking with some wet ass pussy.
We're going to do a detour into Oscar season, my favorite thing, but actually not totally Oscar season because um, our friend Joe Reed is running a movie game at Vulture. Um, if you go to movie game, moviegame.vulture.com, you can is read a lot more draft? about it. I think, it, I don't know, maybe it's movie draft. Movie I've been going game. to moviegame.vulture.com, um, but it works like a draft, at least maybe just Google my, it. I understand fantasy football because of how this game works, like which is probably not how most people understand it, but I'm pretty sure it works like fantasy football where you're given a hundred <laughs> fake dollars and you get to draft uh, eight movies for your team um, that will go throughout award season and then you get points based on how much money they make if they come out after the game begins or if they get any spirit nominations or uh, all kinds of other things Rotten that um, Joe has come up with in his crazy brain. Um, and so they're priced differently. So Oppenheimer uh, is priced at $50, but Dick's the Musical is priced at a dollar. So you have opportunity to kind Ouch. of get some deals. I mean, look, I might draft Dixie Musical on my team. I haven't decided yet. Cheapest um, Dix in a long time. Uh, exactly. Hey, um, but it's a fun way to kind of gamify uh, award season in some ways and the fall. And look, it's a it's a grim time in Hollywood, but the strike's still going on. They keep moving moving movies off the schedule. Why not make a game out of it? And then we got a listener question specifically about this game. We're not just log rolling for our friend Joe um, that maybe we can help with. So, Dave, do you have that email? Yes, from last week. It's from Bala, who asked at the end of their email, I am specifically emailing because I need your help. I am doing the Vulture Film League this year and realize I have no idea what documentaries are the front runners for 2023. And was hoping you guys could take five minutes to talk about it before the deadline to submit my team <laughs> on the 28th of September. So you have time. Uh, any guidance would be much appreciated. Guess what? We're doing a mini segment on it. Katie Rich, our awards uh, guru, <laughs> has broken out the um has written down the, the documentaries that are in the in the draft and we I was looked at them before the podcast and we're like what the fuck why <laughs> haven't we seen good documentaries this year what are these films uh, let's not make it a crisis yet we don't know it yeah. doesn't have to be I'm the spiraling. documentary crisis of 2023 katie has uh, 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 uh took out the documentaries that are available for draft in the game so we want to do some service journalism here and she's going to give us our awards peek into maybe what she would pick. And then uh, Patches and David and I get to decide if uh, we somehow know better. Did you just delete one, Patches? Are you deleting things off of our list that we're He's working on? He's deleting things off the list. There we go. He's okay. muted himself so we can't see it. Also. All right. He's uh, just trying to pull one over and make everybody look bad. Okay. Katie, take it away. So I pulled together what I think is all the documentaries that Joe has put up for drafting. Um, I think the runaway one that I would focus on is American Symphony, um, which just got picked up for distribution. It is uh, the documentary about John Baptiste and a period where he was creating a symphony for Radio City Music Hall, I think. And also his wife was very sick. It played at Telluride. I haven't seen it, but it uh, got really I mean, got rave reviews. And his uh, opinion was picked up by uh, the Oscar is going to be about John Baptiste. Uh, I don't want to put my hands. Has an Oscar, to be clear, uh, put your hands on the scale, David. Did I don't you see it on the scale, right? but uh, I may have been on a small plane with John Batiste and his wife and Errol Morris. Oh, so okay. I think Academy Did you Academy make this voters uh, may that may be enough to put it over the edge. Just saying, I haven't seen the movie. I hear it's only okay, but uh, it's Matthew. Uh, that has it's Matthew Heineman, right? Yeah, Matthew yeah. Heineman, who made Twenty Feet from Stardom. Yeah, no, uh, uh, he made is... no, 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 no. How many feet from Stardom no, 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 is it? No, no, no. It is funny from Stardom, but he didn't make that. No, he made the, the fucking war movies. Oh, yeah. He made uh, A Private War and... Yeah. Okay. Anyway, 
Anyway, so that one, I think, is one to watch. It got picked up by Netflix and Higher Ground, the Obama's uh, company. So, you know, Netflix often becomes a really heavy hitter in this race because they can just pop things on their platform. And often they put on trashy documentaries that people watch and then have some good ones. Um, some of the uh, Netflix also has Stamp from the Beginning, the adaptation of Emer Max Kendi's book. That could be a thing. There's uh, still a Michael J. Fox movie from Apple. I think they have pretty high hopes for that one. Um, the Little Richard documentary uh, could be kind of an oddball in there. The thing I would flag is Caution is Occupied City, which is by C. McQueen, big deal director, mm, but is, that is four not full hours long. Yeah, it's on there. It's, you can draft it for $5, but you can draft American Symphony for $3. I would put my money on that one. But Katie, Katie, I mean, to step back for one, this list has a lot of celeb-driven documentaries you got your paul simon your michael j fox john batiste in the mix stephen curry's in there these mm-hmm. documentaries do not win the best documentary at the oscar yeah like, i know we're talking well, about here, okay. navalny last year we're talking about I my know. octopus teacher my god american factory <laughs> the uh free solo i'm like look at the list okay amy is probably the the comp here 2015 um, but you know that's a, a sudden tragic death, and the first time we get to really explore her entire yeah. life. Uh, that's a different. I, different I think this point. If Twenty Days in Mariupol po- is eligible for the Oscar, yeah, being, uh, I think then, Twenty Days in Mariupol is, and I should have mentioned that too. That's a then, the set in Ukraine. That, that's, that's yeah. Seems to me to tower above the other movies in terms of what the Oscar should go for. There's also one I haven't seen and isn't on the draft list, I think, because it just was hard to predict ahead of time. But the mission from Nat Geo mm-hmm. um, about a missionary has been getting some buzz from Telluride. Oh, sure. um, I don't think it was at TIFF. With the uh, uncontactable uh, civilization, right? Isn't yeah, it? like like Lost City of Z, but as a missionary and in real It'd life. It'd be nice to, um, if something but, like Kokomo City could get in there from Sundance. Lost City of um, Z, Happen but no, Patches, you're right that the celebrity documentary doesn't often win. And I think we're just kind of, you know, going off of what could be seen well in advance um, as potentials for this. Oh, sure. Because Joe is putting it together this summer. So in terms of what is on available on this draft is what I'm talking about. I think what we were talking about before the podcast and what we should bring here is the flag is, is David, you noted that usually by this time, your, your top films of the year list 30 deep might have a documentary or two up there. Like, yeah. I can't think of a great documentary I've seen so far this year. You were struggling. Like, wh- what do you think? So, what's I mean, going on? Are we out of documentaries? Have we committed all documentary resources to clickbait streamer trash? To like, Murdoch murders? I, yeah. yeah Death versus I mean, Her is that shit number one on Netflix, does... but that's not going to get nominated. God. That shit definitely doesn't help. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not prepared with a macro take. Obviously, I think the proliferation of the celebrity-driven documentaries has not helped. Um, the music documentaries, they tend to do well. I mean, there are documentaries out there, but none have really made, like, like it was just, uh, what, last year that all the Beauty and the Bloodshed, or two years ago, that all the Beauty and the Bloodshed exploded out of the Fall Festival circuit and became sort of the must-see movie of award season. Um, nothing yeah. like that has yeah. emerged so yeah. far. Um, I am looking over the list. Fire of Love best. premiered at Sundance, yeah. um, and we kind of ran through the whole year. Yeah, I'm looking at docu- uh, lists of documentaries that have come out this year. Um, not a lot of jumping out of me. The Eternal Memory, which I thought was okay, premiered at Sundance. Kokomo City, as I mentioned, also another Sundance movie. Deepest Breath is very mediocre. Um, has a major Isn't flaw. That, that was a Sundance. Oh, no, that's no, all that, that, that's all that breathes. Um, <laughs> different movie. Yeah, uh, there, there's not a 
ton that is calling out it's to me. I mean, year. I know that the Harvard Sensory Ethnography Lab had a movie about the human body, which is quite, you know, not for the squeamish. What's that? Uh, that was like, it's what called, that called? Uh, God, the fucking uh, title is always going to escape me. Harvard Sensory Ethnography Lab. Get it live on the okay. show. Uh, <laughs> no one else can um, do this at home. This is supposed to be a short segment, which we can wrap up. <laughs> Um, but I want to like people should play the movie game. I'm playing it. I no, am not drafting yet. You can until I figure Don't talk again until you find the title. Yes, okay, go exactly. Ahead, okay. You can draft until Humani Corporis <laughs> Fabrica. Uh, of course, Dude, which is not on this game. Not eligible to draft. Um, uh, no, you can draft it, until it, September 28th. <laughs> that and Claire Simone's Our Body. I'd say were the two. Um, the two most acclaimed documentaries that I've seen, you know, be acclaimed this year, but I guess not Are good enough for good Joe Reed. My octopus teacher. Uh, yeah, uh, the octopus teachers are in this. Yes. Uh, so you can draft until September 28th. It's going to be fun. You should do it. Um, we have a, can I, can I promote the league I'm doing a little gold man or is that not allowed on the show? Nope. What? Yes, go for it. Too late. Play in, play in the Little Gold Me, in the Little Gold Men League. When you sign up, you can pick a league. Pick Little Goldies, all one word. Play along with me and the host on that show. But if you guys do it, tell people what your team... You can come up with a oh, really your, silly team name. Are those your fans, the Little Goldies? Yeah, exactly. I think there's um, a more pressing deadline here now that we've assessed the documentary fair of the year, which is someone needs to go out and shoot a documentary that kicks ass <laughs> right now and try and get it in before the Oscar deadline because there is room for you to win. Back uh, to narrow down. Uh, Bala, thank you for your question. The recommendation is American Symphony for $1. Katie Rich says is good. And uh, David and Katie Rich both say 20 Days in Maripol. That one's $2. So whatever you have mm-hmm. left over to invest in for your documentary pick, those seem to be the two ones we are surfacing for this game. Indeed. Aha! Tonight we are talking in our final segment about uh, the film of the times. What am I talking about? It is a mystery. No, it's not. I solved it just now. I'm actually talking about the latest Hercule Poirot mystery. Yes, yeah, starting well, It's like Hercule he's Poirot. here on Hercule. Zoom. Hercule. Hercule Poirot is here. I, I'm now an Italian. Uh, <laughs> what's going on here? We're talking about a haunting in Venice, but we may not stop there. We, we kind oh, of that's why step- you're Italian back and uh talk about murder on the orient express death on the nile everything kenneth Branagh has been doing the maybe the weirdest franchise uh in recent years this how did this happen uh it would be one of my big questions throughout this segment because <laughs> murder on the orient orient express predates uh knives out knives like out that explosion of what year did it come out moments this is that's 2017 at this point kenneth oh, always has his, covid he always kenneth has his finger did. on the pulse Kenneth Branagh um, didn't have an Oscar yet at that point. Now he does. Wow. He won an Oscar for what? Writing Belfast. Belfast? For writing Belfast. It's, it's a thing that happened. <laughs> um, well, his new one, A Haunting in Venice, is in theaters now. And who saw it? Raise of hands. Dave, you and I saw this film. David, Katie, you did not. I, you've seen I, it. I, I want to. I watched, I watched Death on the Nile for this podcast. I had not seen any of Good. them. So I'm, I'm I will glad. come in with takes. Well, we're going to come in with a lot of takes. And I'm glad that you saw Death on the Nile because 
Death of the Nile, as you will soon describe, is a big, bloated, weird blockbuster attempt to make a murder mystery into something huge, uh, and with Gal Gadot doing Gal Gadot. Um, and A Haunting in Venice totally scales back. Like, I don't know if Death on the Nile was a failure on some level because of the pandemic and having to shift dates a lot. I'm sure it lost a lot of money. Um, but it obviously made enough. I think it made over a hundred million dollars or hundred fifty million dollars or so. I'm looking no, at it. To make another one, it came out in 2022, like yeah, a year a, ago. It, that movie was beset yeah. on on all sides by uh, misfortune. You know, it had the army hammy thing, army army hammy thing. It had uh, <laughs> the <laughs> pandemic. It had a lot of shit. It only made 137 million worldwide on a 90 to 100 million dollar budget before. P&A spend. Cost so that, million. Yeah. So, I mean, they I mean, the whole thing the is whole shot on Nile. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they, uh, it, it is the kind of movie that the creator is hopefully going to render out of existence. I don't mean God, I mean the movie, the creator. Uh, but the movie is, <laughs> it, it, it is. Um, uh-huh. Don't steal my spotlight, David. We have no, to talk it, about it, these movies. It, it must, it must be valuable to someone on some level of Disney's corporate structure uh, they must think that it's appealing to Disney Plus subscribers, or um, that you know it has right. potential. It has like, legs. So like, so, I mean, it and is... that like Kenneth Braun is turning these things in, you know, under budget and on time, no matter how inflated that budget is uh, to begin with. I don't know, but they keep making them. And I think some of that pr- that thinking is really present in A Haunting in Venice, which scales way down from Death on the Nile and kind of reworks an Agatha Christie book called Halloween Party, which I did read because uh, I spent a few uh, weeks doing 5.30 in the morning walks with my son listening to any audiobook that wouldn't put me to sleep and uh, or wouldn't wake me up too much either. 5.30 so in the morning? Was Henry, what the fuck? I know. Yeah. Gotta, gotta go back to sleep. But uh, Halloween Party takes place at a Halloween party. A kid dies and Poirot and his murder mystery writing friend team up to solve the mystery. This is kind of what we get in A Haunting in Venice. The mi- Why didn't the... they keep it called Halloween Party and release it at Halloween? What the hell? I think that sounds a little jaunty for uh Halloween Party. Mystery. I think, I think that might not be the vibe of this very <laughs> macabre, uh, kind of psychological movie. Again, this is scaling way down. It takes place in, uh, in the budget, house according, as to According to Wikipedia, which is never wrong, the budget yeah. for this is only sixty million. That's compared to the ninety to hundred million for the Death in the Nile. So they, they did obviously back. bought this very elaborate Venetian, you know, apartment. They tricked that out and built all those sets. But for the they most actually, part, wait, they filmed in Venice. Like they bought. A it real... certainly looks like. Well, I don't know if they bought a apartment, but they were shoot, uh, shooting. in Production occurred there. Be- between Pinewood Studios and Venice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they built this extravagant sure. indoor apartment set, but it's it's really close quarters. Like. This could be an episode of Murder, She Wrote. In fact, my big take here is it should have been just an episode of Murder, She Wrote where Poirot and Jessica (laughs) team up because (laughs) Tina Fey literally plays the murder mystery writer, Agatha Christie proxy. But um, to to kind of make up for the lack of grandeur of Death of Nile and and, in a way, Murder on the Orient Express in 2017, even though that was all CG bloat, uh, Branagh is just like in full fisheye camera, like, twirling around going crazy as Poirot tries to poke holes in the seance that's going to be conducted by Michelle Yao about this over this girl who had been um who died by suicide years before but you know there might be more to it than that maybe there was an actual murder um but no one you know the family of this uh of this deceased girl 
wants to reconnect with her during their Halloween party. Kind of a mood killer, I would I would say, like bobbing <laughs> their apples and then trying to communicate with your dead daughter. Not the, not what I would bring to the party, but they do that anyway. And Poirot and his and Tina Fey as the mystery writer want to see if they, she can really communicate with the dead or if this is bullshit. And Poirot is the one to call it. Um, and that's the whole thing. It's a lot of like talking in rooms. It's a lot of Poirot kind of losing his mind a little bit and spinning around. And it's totally different than these other two movies. Dave, in a good way, in a bad way, what did you think of Haunting in Venice before we get to like this weird West franchise at all? I mean, I liked it because it's Kenneth Branagh's return to uh, heavy Dutch angles. I'm assuming I, I haven't seen the other two, but. You got some Thor Dutch angles on close-ups here. Uh, the fisheye lens is out. The rooms are spinning. Uh, I think it is actually uh, very compellingly shot, considering how small it is. Like, you sort of feel uh, the large space occupied by just a few people. You get the idea sort of geographically of people being separated at important times. You know when the doors are locked and when they're not. I think it all works very well, technically. I like this movie a lot. I came out on a trial by contents goop episode and finally let them that audience in on my uh, ghost art real ethos. <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, I show up to Haunting in Venice and Mr. Pierrot is like, uh, ghosts aren't real because if ghosts are real, there's a soul. And if a soul's real, there's a God. And I've seen too much to believe in God. And I'm like, go hard. That's a great place to start <laughs> a movie. Off, King. Yeah, and so that's where he starts. Things happen to complicate his belief in these things, but I was very much into that starting point. I actually am fine with it being called a haunting in Venice and not a Halloween party because I think the strong parts of this are the parts that don't have to be um, part of previously produced uh, Agatha Christie work. I mean, no uh, disrespect gotta... to the late Miss Crispy. Miss Crispy, Jesus. Crispy. <laughs> no, take that back, take two. Those no elves had wives? I didn't realize. <laughs> so the late Miss Crispy. <laughs> but uh, Haunting Events is a much better title. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. Uh, Katie, what we didn't get to see that you got to see in uh, Odell and Nile is the origin story for the mustache. Oh, yeah. So, oh, I mean, that God. was important. What a prologue that is. I know. <laughs> Instead of starting with the beginning, we are very obviously towards the end of uh, Piro's detective in career. I would have been interested if he wants to keep going with this franchise for him to continue deviating from previously produced Agatha, Agatha Christie movies or even Agatha Christie books. I like uh, the, the idea of spinning this. This could definitely be still a show. ridiculous. Still ridiculous character out. Uh, yeah, it could be a show. This this installment could definitely be a show. Braddock did Wallander um, on BBC. There's no reason he can't grow his mustache and do like a ten episode poker face esque. I mean, he's not growing a mustache series. for this thing. That is like a, a oh, you think you know, that's expertly uh, crafted. Uh, there's something going on there. It's got like two. What I didn't realize until I watched Death on the Nile is that it's got like a a, a flip and then another flip. Like it's a multi layered mm -hmm. uh, mustache. It's Susian. Uh, it's pretty incredible. Uh, I had a great time watching Death on the Nile, which I had been like told was a piece of garbage. I mean, it's not a good. It, it kind of is a piece of movie. garbage. I mean, but... I had a good time watching it though. Like, it's what did, silly what on every like? possible level. Like, just all the parts where it's like, oh, is it this person he's interrogating, or is it that person? Like, I, you know, that's me enjoying like the format of Agatha Christie, which is not necessarily something that Branna takes credit for, but I think. 
is really fun to watch. Like there's little jokes in there that like play perfectly as jokes. I mean, all of the CGI of like the pyramids and everything is <laughs> nonsense and terror. It is inexplicably bloated. Um, but I like. But it has some good set pieces and expensive ones where like the flappers I mean, the are there. And dan- there's dance yeah, sequences. Yeah, the ship and... itself is incredible set where they're kind of wandering around and like the camera will like pan over these like panes of glass that like refract everybody and it looks all very metaphorical. Um, everyone's accents make no sense. There's Kenneth Branagh's French accent, Annette Benning has a British accent, Letitia Wright has an American accent, Sophia Canedo has like a crazy Mississippi accent. Like no one is speaking the way that they're supposed to, um, which kind of <laughs> just adds to like the costume party nature of it. Um, yeah, I had Doesn't a good time. Doesn't have watched... a Belgian accent? Uh, sure sure i mean no like don't don't trust me on these things um yeah a lot of of dancing as you said like everyone like has great costumes so but yeah i totally like i if you had asked me previously i would have been like wait kenneth friend has made three of these things and after watching death on the nile i was like yeah okay keep it coming i kind of wonder what you think i mean branog might be one of the king kings of mugging branog 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 i'm sorry branog (laughs) <laughs> um, King of Mugging. I was thinking about Wild Wild West. He mugging me off. I was thinking about his he mustaches. He acting me like a mug. He lugs a mug. He it's likes my, uh, it's my, he likes uh, making faces. Love Island influence. He treat Jesus. me like a mug. He gonna mug me off. He's acting like a muggy. You are not gonna be in the cast of the next one of these, unfortunately. I mean, uh, let me get with that kind of accent, here. I might be. <laughs> do you think that there's like why do you think he's all in on Poirot? Do you think there's a connection to like the Shakespeare stuff? from his early career. The middle of his career is weird. He was making Thor and Jack Ryan and uh, a lot of garbage. But um, I'm kind of wondering if you think there's, like, what he's on about. Why does he love Shakespeare? Or what were his Shakespeare movies, the grand experiment there? And is there any kind of connection to him keep drilling down into Poirot? That sounds kind of sick, but... Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's just making faces and having a reason to be like really big on screen in ways that few are. That's my theory. But I mean, I'm, he likes to go in big. What's wrong with that? I, absolutely nothing. Well, I very much enjoy it. If I were him, I would uh, keep playing the character and stop directing the movies. It seems like doing both. <laughs> It's like really stressing him uh, because like this one, it is smaller. It has slightly less star power. This is also the one, from my understanding of the complicated Death of the Nile production schedule, this is the one that uh, 20th uh, Century Studios under Disney greenlit. The other ones were old 20th Century Fox movies that Mm. sort of kicked off this franchise. So Disney coming up and being like, you know, you could do this, but we're not paying for Johnny Depp ever again. And you have to keep the budget down and the scope down. I I could see him keep to keep going. I could also see, like I was saying, he just gets to play the character so there's some sort of continuity in franchising, but he doesn't have to come back and actually take time out to direct it. He could go do another Belfast or something if he wants. Yeah. How many but I think, Agatha Christie no. books are there? Oh, many, many. Okay, so you, you could really keep going forever. Yeah, yeah or you or can just, do what they did here, which is this just one... kind of like rework it on your Does on this your own one and do whatever with you want a, with it. a tease similar to how the previous certainly the first movie did no this one ends with i'm old and uh no. I w- actually in the beginning of the movie he's kind of giving up on solving crimes and tina fey 
yanks him back into action to investigate the seance. But by the, well, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler. By the end, he has some renewed sense of himself that wants to do detective work. So maybe there is, I, don't, I wouldn't call that a tease. I would call that a, a closing of the book on this franchise. Mm. I don't know. I'm not optimistic for more Poirot uh, adventures here, but... um. I mean, uh, the real answer is probably first one came out, did successful enough. Ryan Johnson stepped up to the plate, and now whatever studio can get Kenneth Brown out of the air is going to be like, can you give us a Knives Out? And he's like, I will try. And we're like, we like you. You're a director we can invest in. And, you know, Simon Kidberg and Ridley Scott produced this one, too. So somebody's, somebody's signing off on the, on the checks. Um yeah, I, I appreciated it for being small. I've kind of, I've been missing the actual medium-sized movie that has, mm -hmm. like, recognizable stars in it. And I think this fits in a pretty good pocket. I'm not sure if it's spooky enough. I can see why it came out at the end of September, not necessarily in October, because then you're staying absolutely clear of your Saw 10s and your actual horror movies that are coming through. Uh, but yeah, it presents a comfortable movie for you know older audiences who are going to recognize all of these actors who are maybe enjoyed the first Pirot films and are going to come back to see this one it seems like a really safe bet but also one that they didn't have to swing so big as from what i understand death of the nile to just make it big and big they're like you don't need to make it big allow it to be a medium movie and so i'm i'm wary to say that i don't want more medium-sized movies no matter how small in narrative scope they happen to be i pretty much agree with you but to like pick at my own uh thread here which was I, you know i love hamlet that 96 movie that he shot on 70 millimeter that looks amazing i think the thing about that movie is he surrounded himself with people who are at his level or better you know you have like Julie Christie mm -hmm. and Kate Winslet and Robin Williams is in that movie. Derek Jacobi, you know, Shakespeare master. Um, and in this, now that he's kind of graduated, he's the elder statesman in his own movies. And while he is going to a literary well here, like few other writer directors, especially at a studio level with The Haunting of Venice, he's out acting everyone in this movie. No one is working at the caliber that Brownog is, even if it's ridiculous. Like, he's making crazy faces, or he's doing the Poirot voice and being like, Oh, yes, I will solve the mystery, and I will ask all the questions, and let me get out my notebook. <laughs> and it's like, no one can keep up. Kristen, or, what's her name? Kristen Riley from Yellowstone. Uh, I just, I not, had to go not, to the internet oh, Kelly Riley. To, con Kelly Riley. to confirm before you continue. There is truly no G sound whatsoever at the end of his name. <laughs> like, none. Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. His name ends with the G. Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. Hercule Poirot. I feel like you're giving it a French accent or something. A Belgian accent, excuse me. Hercule Poirot. Well, he's starting every accent part with just so he can plug right into it. I see that touchstone patches. Fitware 445 is in the top 10 because nobody speaks correctly on this episode. It I is fantastic. It like Babe Ruth. Penny Branow. Anyway, Kelly Riley. Uh, no, this yes, is not. Over. This segment isn't quite over yet. Kelly Riley, not necessarily <sighs> up to the task. Tina Fey uh, is basically. 
it feels like a hangover for only murders in the building. I don't understand if oh, these are two call. different gears. If these are two different gears of Tina Fey, um, uh, but yeah, the I the kids fine. Michelle Yeoh is fine. Jamie Dornan uh, is is there enough? Uh, but yeah, uh, I think it's Fuck. it's fun. It's it's I enjoyed seeing it in the theater again because of the you know weird cinematography and bright colors and whatnot. But I think it's going to be a fun uh, series to pick up uh, on streaming. And I was looking it up, and Patches is absolutely correct from the beginning of this segment. I think we have this sequel because Death on the Nile didn't do that well in the box office. But when it came out, it had like three weeks in a row where it was the most streamed thing across all platforms. And that's who this movie's for. This movie is for the people who need to keep their streaming subscriptions uh, but also for somebody who just want to have a nice September uh, weekend at the movies, I, th- I think this is perfectly fine. It's not breaking any new ground, but uh, it'd be hard to break new ground in a Agatha Christie uh, box at this point. It's, it's actually uh, very... pronounced Jamie Dornog for future reference. All right, now this now the segment's <laughs> over. <laughs> I'm that bitch. Yeah. That's it for this week's show. We'll be back next week do we know what we're talking about next week uh wes we... anderson oh, yeah. and asteroid city hey yeah we're gonna talk about the wes anderson shorts on netflix and asteroid city so join us asteroid City's on peacock i just watched it recently you can too uh in the meantime uh tell the people who you are i am matt patches and uh <laughs> i'm the executive editor of polygon.com I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patrick's and uh, Letterbox and all that jazz. Blue Sky. And you can find us on fightinginthewarm.com where, I don't know, we talked about everything on this episode before, probably. <laughs> I got nothing. Not gonna do it. Just go listen to the show. I'm David Ehrlich. And the film critic over at IndieWire. You can find me on X at David Ehrlich at Blue Sky, whatever the fuck my name is over there. It's my name. Letterboxed Instagram. Uh, you can find all of us together on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. We'll read it live on the show. Great fun for everyone. Uh, if you are not in the United States of America or have access to the iTunes store that we read from, you can send us an email. Dave, where can they do that? You can email us at fitwr.podcast.gmail.com. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter, X, whatever, at DA7D. I'm also in the similar on Blue Sky. Uh, and you could go to themcubook.com to pre-order your copy of the Marvel book and see events that we're doing for a book tour in October and see why I'm not going to be on the podcast the second week of October. But I will get to see these fantastic people. Right, Katie? Yeah. Uh, I am Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on the Little Gold Men podcast, uh, where we talked about the movie game some this week. I also talked to Craig Gillespie about Dumb Money uh, last week. You should listen to that conversation if you want to hear more about Dumb Money. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, on Blue Sky at Katie Rich. I'm trying to use it more. We'll see every week. It's just a question. What's going to happen? <laughs> um, and you can find us all on Twitter and Blue Sky. Uh, we, you know, we can use that too. Um, at FITWR, where you can tell everyone about how you're going to read Dave's book, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Stop Making Sense, returning to theaters this weekend, an October surprise Taylor Swift concert film, what concert movie should be re-released in IMAX? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.
Pampadang, ditampandang. A pam pam dan the Ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. Now I'm done. I'm done. We're done.